Welcome to the CEC report for the 27th of June 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we have time to strip APRA of its powers, starting with bail-in, and war or peace, welcome to the grey zone. So firstly today, time to strip APRA of its powers, starting with bail-in. Now, in February 2018, our parliament well, at least some of them, there were seven uh, senators present at the time, gave a top secret organisation the power to take control of our banks in a financial crisis and to make critical decisions. And that organisation was APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Now, those new powers included the power to confiscate certain types of bonds to recapitalise the bank and with a little bit of creativity, deposits as well. But the International Monetary Fund put out a report this February, so a year later, demanding that we include the confiscation of deposits explicitly in a full statutory bail-in. Mm. The other thing that was uh, stated explicitly in that uh, report, which was a financial stability assessment from the IMF, was a call for much greater independence uh, for APRA and complete freedom from any interference by government. Now, of course, APRA is a subsidiary of the Bank for International Settlements, which, as we showed in last week's show, uh, demands that these kind of financial bodies be above and dictate terms to governments. So in that uh, IMF report, they demanded that financial stability be APRA's number one priority, over and above things like depositor protection, that APRA is completely made completely independent of Treasury. Uh, they in fact said that the power to the Minister to issue directions to APRA about policies it should pursue is a matter of potential concern. And also to put an end to Parliament's power to disallow an APRA prudential standard. So right now the Parliament could intervene in a crisis to say, tell APRA it couldn't do that, yeah. and the IMF want us to abolish that. So today we are announcing, uh, we are pushing our amendment, which we have been pushing for some time, to this APRA law, to that February 2018 legislation, um, to do the opposite of what the IMF is demanding, and that is to explicitly exclude deposits. That's what should be passed as an amendment. Yeah. Uh, exclude them from bailing. That's right, Lisa. We have a bill in the Parliament right now, uh, which is actually, it's actually the anniversary on the 25th of June, of the first bill that Bob Catter introduced on our Glass-Steagall bill, which meant that there is a bill in Parliament now, it was introduced, reintroduced by Pauline Hanson, to stop bailing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so Glass-Steagall would be the alternative uh, which would stop banks gambling, and if banks aren't gambling, then they're not going to be brought down by a financial crash, yeah. uh, which is what APRA is preparing for. That's right. And, you know, the deposits of, of people would be um, protected in that way. Mm -hmm. So to situate that, we're going to show a quick video, which is up on our website, um, which announces the petition that we've put out, which we need your help on. The most important thing you need to know about bail-in is that we can and must stop it. Bail-in will take your deposits. The banks are bankrupt and the only way they've been able to um, come up with a, a scheme to convince themselves that they can continue with the reckless gambling that's made them bankrupt is, oh, let's have this, let's have this thing on the side where the insurance is paid for by the, our own customers, right? Everywhere it's been used, it's been a disaster. Um, but the 
the, the way the Australian banks are, uh, are set up internally with all the derivatives bets that they've been allowed to accumulate over the last couple of decades, they will run into trouble with the, with the, the, the um, decline of the financial system, the decline of the, the property market that they're already going through, etc. These, these are, there's, there's landmines in the bank's balance sheets and off their balance sheets where the derivatives are that are going to explode on them. And they have set up this bail-in system for that purpose. That's what it's for. And so we, we, we know that, that we've got a law in place that can be used to bail in deposits um, via the back door. But we also know the IMF is saying you've got to have an even stronger one. And we know the Financial Stability Board has said, has revealed in its latest report that Australia is planning a stronger law. So we all know that to be true, right? So this is not an academic thing. With the state of the economy, expect these to be used. But it's a political question how they're used, right? And what's happened in Australia that's unique is we've been able to shine a spotlight on this and put the parliament under extreme scrutiny such that, they've, that what they've had to do so far is sneak it through. So as bad as that was in, on the 14th of February 2018 when they snuck the bill through the Senate with only eight senators present, they had to do that because they're scared of you. And that's what you've got to understand. That's why the most important thing is we can stop this thing. So get involved in the campaign. Take the petition that you've signed. Sign the petition. Take it and share it. Get as many other people to sign as possible. But take copies and take it to your Member of Parliament. There's 30 new Liberal MPs in the Federal Parliament. right? We need to start bombarding all parliamentarians, especially these new ones, what are you going to do about this threat to our financial system? Because it's not just a threat to your money. It's a threat to the whole financial system. All the experts around the world who agree with the CEC that we must oppose bail-in, they say this is insane because it destroys the confidence, which is the base of the financial system. So we have that to ask these members of parliament, what are you going to do about it? And that's, 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 that's the CEC's message. Don't be a passive participant in this campaign. Be an active participant knowing that... Um, not only must we stop it, but we can stop it if we bring enough attention to bear onto this subject. So, Alicia, the, the, what we need to, you know, our viewers to do is to jump onto our website, sign the petition, mm. and collect other petition signers, and then you know, take the petition to their MP, as Robbie said in the video. Mm. Because, look, this is the anniversary of the introduction of our bill, the Glass-Steagall, into the Parliament. This is the solution. This winds back the power of APRA big time. Mm. And it's a live bill. I mean, it was introduced into the Parliament. There was a, by Pauline Hanson into the Senate. Mm. There was a Senate inquiry. We had thousands of submissions to that. Uh, then, of course, it was buried by the Senator Jane Hume. <coughs> and the election came up in the middle of that. And, of course, the whole thing has been, hopefully, they are thinking, you know, buried. But that's not the case. This petition is vitally important for people to, you know, re-enliven the, in the minds of the new parliamentarians that have come in, what the issue is. Because the global financial crisis hasn't mm. disappeared. Yeah, disappeared. And it, it does have a real impact when these MPs are getting hammered on this issue repeatedly. Yeah. And it, these are the kinds of real solutions we should be implementing rather than talking about, you know, new rounds of quantitative easing as is being discussed now, even in Australia, to try and prop up the housing yeah, bubble. The quantitative easing, of course, Lisa, is money printing. They're going to just print money and put it into the economy and that's going to try yeah. and solve, they think, it's going to try and solve Make the, the bubble bigger and worse yeah. when it does blow. So we'll stop there and we'll be back shortly to talk about war or peace.
Welcome to the CEC Report. We're now discussing a war or peace. Welcome to the grey zone, which refers to uh, the new zone of warfare, which is not so-called officially war and certainly not peace. And we'll come to that in a moment. But last week, of course, we narrowly avoided a war being launched when a drone was shot, an American drone was shot down above the Straits of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf. Uh, now, I want to show a clip here to situate this of Tucker Carlson from Fox News, uh, who was one of the people that Trump actually called for advice. Uh, one of the good things about him is he does get a wide range of advice from all sorts of people. But this clip actually shows how much of a brawl there is on the subject of war in the US right now because Fox News was all in favour of the Iraq war uh, back when that went on. So we'll roll that clip. Just 24 hours ago, this country stood on the brink of cataclysm. After weeks of slow escalation and without a single vote from the Congress, the United States came within minutes of war with Iran. In response to the destruction of an unmanned drone, American forces nearly launched an airstrike on Iranian targets. According to some reports, our planes were literally in the air. But in the end, it didn't happen. The president pulled back. This morning, he explained why. They came and they said, sir, we're ready to go. We'd like a decision. I said, I want to know something before you go. How many people will be killed? In this case, Iranians. Mm -hmm. I said, how many people are going to be killed? Uh, sir, I'd like to get back to you on that. Great people, these generals. They said, uh, came back, said, sir, approximately 150. And I thought about it for a second. And I said, you know what? They shot down an unmanned uh, drone, mm -hmm. plane, whatever you want to call it. And here we are sitting with 150 dead people that would have taken place probably within a half an hour after I said go ahead yeah. and I didn't like it I didn't think it was I didn't think it was proportionate how many people will be killed the most basic of all questions but a question that's too rarely asked by leaders contemplating war 150 people wiped off the planet in retaliation for a broken drone every one of them the president reminded his staff last night someone with a family the whole thing, in the end, offended his sense of decency. He said it seemed disproportionate, and it was. Moreover, airstrikes would have led to a wider conflict with Iran. That, of course, was the entire point of it. Policymakers in Washington crave a war with Iran. Last night was supposed to be the first domino. At the last minute, the president thwarted their plans. For that, he's being vilified. Watch CNN's 36-year-old national security analyst attack the president for not killing enough people yesterday. This is kind of a worst case scenario. The president is showing that he ostensibly made a decision, had a National Security Council meeting, and wasn't willing to follow through. All in all, this shows gross disorganization and a president who can't seem to make up his mind, even on something as important as a military strike on Iran. Only in foreign policy circles do people say things that stupid. In fact, last night was a high point in the Trump presidency. Bombing Iran would have ended his political career in a minute. There'd be no chance of re-election after that. Ill-advised wars are like doing cocaine. The initial rush rises your poll numbers, but the crash is inevitable. And in this case, it would be horrible. The hangover from an Iraq war would last years. Iran is not Syria or Iraq. It's a big, rich, sophisticated country with an ancient culture and a cohesive population. In some ways, it's an impressive place, not at all like the chintzy prefab capitals of the Arab world, like Riyadh or Dubai. We could beat Iran, but it would not be easy. It would cost trillions of dollars. Many thousands of Americans likely would die. China would love it. 
they'd be the only winners in that conflict. Donald Trump was elected president precisely to keep us out of disasters like war with Iran. So how did we get so close to starting one? Simple. The neocons still wield enormous power in Washington. They don't care what the cost of a war with Iran is. They certainly don't care what the effect on Trump's political fortunes might be. They despise Donald Trump. Now, one of their key allies is the National Security Advisor of the United States. John Bolton is an old friend of Bill Kristol's. Together, they helped plan the Iraq War. When Bolton made it to the White House, the neocons cheered. Left-wing New York Times columnist Brett Stevens took a break from attacking Donald Trump to celebrate his hiring. Stevens assured MSNBC viewers that John Bolton was a great choice because he would push the president toward war. He's not uh, the sort of caricaturish uh, hawk that he's been made out to be in some, in some corners of the press. I think someone like Bolton is going to restrain the isolationist impulses that have been uh, really at the heart of uh, Trump's foreign policy thinking. Got that? John Bolton is going to restrain Donald Trump from avoiding war. And, of course, that's exactly what he's tried to do from the very first day. Shortly before Bolton took his new job, we invited him on this show and asked about some of his many, many previous foreign policy positions. Watch as Bolton denies ever being wrong, ever, about anything, not even a little bit. So you've, you've called for regime change in Iraq, Libya, Iran, and Syria. In the first two countries, we've had regime change. And obviously, it's been, I'd say, a disaster. I think no, we agree. No, okay. I, I don't agree with that. And, and let, me, let me. You don't think it's been a disaster? No. I think you need to understand yeah. is that life is complicated in the Middle East. And when you say, well, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein was a mistake, is simplistic. I, I would argue that I'm the one who understands how complicated it is, but just my view. It's, it's your long experience in foreign policy. <laughs> Better record than yours, I would say. Got that? Hillary Clinton's toppling of the Libyan government was not a disaster, says John Bolton. Keep in mind, there are literally slave markets operating in the streets of Tripoli right now. No problem, though. Bolton's fine with that. He's fine with the outcome in Iraq, too. That wasn't a disaster either. According to John Bolton, it was a raging success. We killed hundreds of thousands of people, lost thousands of our own troops, spent more than a trillion dollars, all to eliminate a WMD threat that, despite John Bolton's assurances, never existed in the first place. Bolton is glad we did all that, really happy about it. That's demented. Normal people don't talk like that. There's nothing normal about John Bolton. Check out this piece of tape, recently uncovered, in which Bolton promises that we're going to overthrow the government of Iran. Keep in mind that this was filmed long before the Iranians shot down a single drone. I have said for over 10 years since coming to these events, that the declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime in Tehran. And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. In other words, last night has been in the works for years. John Bolton is a kind of bureaucratic tapeworm. Try as you might, you can't expel him. He seems to live forever in the bowels of the federal agencies, periodically reemerging to cause pain and suffering, but critically, somehow never suffering himself. His life really is Washington in a nutshell. Blunder into obvious catastrophes again and again, refuse to admit blame, and then demand more of the same. That's the John Bolton life cycle. 
in between administration jobs are always cushy think tank posts, paid speaking gigs, cable news contracts. War may be a disaster for America, but for John Bolton and his fellow neocons, it is always good business. So, Alicia, the best thing that Putin, um, Trump could do is sack Bolton Absolutely. and meet with Putin at the G20. If you want peace in the world, that's what has to be done. Yeah, dialogue has to be a critical part of it. Now, we'll stop for a moment. We'll keep discussing this right after this break. Welcome back to the CEC Report where we're talking about war or peace. Now, I want to roll another clip here, which is from Joanna Lumley's Silk Road Adventure when she was in Iran. Um, now, she's kind of the, um, the crocodile hunter of culture, you might say, so bear with me. But it was the full uh, video is excellent and it just situates exactly what this country is like and what we'd be destroying. So while you're watching, I want you to imagine this being turned into the current situation of chaos in Iraq or Libya or Syria. Our final stop in Iran lies just 60 kilometers from Shiraz. These are the colossal walls of Persepolis, one of the mighty cities, the legendary cities of the ancient world. I'm seeing it for the first time. My heart is beating so hard. So this is how they would have come up to this palace, wondering what they were going to see. I'm wondering what I'm going to see. Look at this avenue, huge avenue coming across the plain. And it would have led you right up, all the way up to... Oh my gosh. Persepolis was founded by Darius the Great in 518 BC when Iron Age Britons were still living in wooden hill forts. It was designed only for pomp and pageantry and became the ceremonial capital of the Persian Empire, a beacon of extravagance. What it must have been like to come to see this palace, I mean, the scale of it, it's, it's amazing. Persepolis quite soon became the envied city in the entire world. Is it not passing brave to be a king and ride in triumph through Persepolis? Those lines were written by Christopher Marlowe in the play Tamburlaine the Great. And on stage in London, if you're in a classical play and you dry, you forget your words. You just say that and the audience will never know that it's just been dropped in. It gives you time to think of your next line. Is it not passing brave to be a king and ride in triumph through Persepolis? With the city in its prime, the Persian Empire ruled over 44% of the world's population, a greater percentage than any other empire in history. So this is a depiction on the wall of all the different parts of the empire, of the great Persian Empire, bringing tribute to the king of the time. So this would be a Mede with his round hat. This would be a Persian with his tall hat, holding hands. This group comes from India, and you can see he's wearing a sari. This lot come from Samarkand. I'm going to Samarkand next, another of the exotic and fabulous places in the world, which was on the Silk Road. This was people coming from all over the place, bringing trade and bringing it through Iran and through Persepolis. These are Greeks, and they've got honeycombs and folded cloth, cups of some sweet nectar, possibly Vratsina. And they're all going upstairs, and they're all bringing their gifts to the king of kings, the Shah and Shah. The Iranian state has its problems, 
and it's not an obvious tourist destination for us in the West. And yet the ordinary and extraordinary people I've met have been welcoming, warm and generous. I met an Iranian man here just today with his family and they said welcoming signs to me and he just said, governments. <laughs> That's exactly what I feel. And now, for lust of knowing what should not be known, I take the golden road to Samarkand. Okay, so I want to talk a bit more, Craig, about this grey zone because the US and the UK are already admitting that they're jumping into this zone big time with cyber warfare. Um, now, the New York Times on the 15th of June had an article where the US has admitting, they're admitting to conducting cyber warfare, offensive cyber warfare against Russia. Um, they quoted from John Bolton again, and they also um, had US officials saying that there are active operations against Russia now to put malware into Russia's electric grid, electricity and power grid, and other targets. And the authority to do this, by the way, derives from new legal provisions that were inserted into the military authorization bill that was passed by the Congress about a year ago. And most people didn't even notice that was in there. So this okays clandestine military activity in cyberspace. And then on the 13th of June, a BBC report revealed that there's a new special operations concept being drawn up, and it has to be okayed yet, but it would allow the SAS, the Special Boat Service and Special Reconnaissance Regiment to conduct secret operations in this so-called hybrid space. Uh, and the Chief of General Staff, Sir Mark Carlton Smith, uh, has spoken about this and basically it would include disinformation, subversion and cyber warfare. Now, of course, we reported on the show a couple of weeks ago that the SBS, the Special Boat Force Service, was in the Persian Gulf at the time that those two oil tankers were attacked, which was blamed on Iran. Mm -hmm. So you've got to ask the question, were they already conducting this kind of activity? And that while they say it's a grey zone, it's not war, look, NATO accepts cyber war as a trigger for Article 5 when all the other nations would come in to defend a NATO member. So this is serious. Oh, very serious. So let's look, the G20 is meeting tomorrow. For the time most people watch this video, we don't know what's going to take place there. We do hope that Trump gets to meet Putin and Xi Jinping. Because look, the issue here is peace through economic development. Right now we have a global financial crisis roaring down upon the world. The debt problems and uh, the speculation of the first GFC have never been issued, uh, dealt with and you just had the issuance of huge amounts of you know, money pumping, you know, quantitative easing. They're going, the, the central banks and so forth are indicating they're going to go back to a failed policy. So with all these police state measures you see coming in, uh, in Australia mm. now, look at the, you know, the, 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 the raids on the journalists and so forth. This is designed to give the governments the power to deal with the financial crisis first and foremost. Yep. The other option is always when the financial uh, system is about to come down, you start a war. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very dangerous situation. So the solution lies with discussions with Trump and Putin and Trump and Xi Jinping in uh, in Japan, mm. but, you know, we'll see what happens from that. But that's really, you know, peace for economic development is the only solution here. Yeah, we have to shed some serious light onto these secret operations, whether they be in the financial and banking sector, like we've shown with APRA, Absolutely. or whether they be these secret hybrid war operations that are going on. And for more on all of those yeah. subjects, it's all well documented in this week's Australian Alert Service. So call in for a free copy if you haven't already. 
Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. See you next week. Thank you.